Today we're continuing the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. Then we're going to pick up a section of chapter 2 that we skipped earlier, and you'll, you'll understand why as we, as we get going here. We conclude the story we've been looking at for the last three weeks. We saw John and Peter in the temple courts and around the temple, and they see a man there who has been unable to walk since birth. We, find out, we found out last week that he was over 40 years old. They're there, they're walking. He, he, he begs every day because that's how he survives. There's no job for him to work in the, in the ancient world without the ability to walk. So he begs. He's essentially is asking them for money. They don't have money for him. What they have for him is something better, and they give him the gift uh, of, of walking, right? The ability to walk. Last week we saw that some of the Jewish uh, leaders questioned John and Peter as to how they were able to accomplish this. They invoke, of course, the name of Jesus which gets them jailed overnight. Um, they are threatened the next day to quit speaking about this Jesus, to let it go, right, to drop it, and then they'll, they'll go free. So this is what happens next in the story here in Acts chapter 4. Again, verse 23, it says this, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then they're going to quote Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. On their release, they're let go. They're warned, remember, sternly to, to quit speaking about this Jesus. Uh, it doesn't work all that well. Uh, you're here, so that's proof that they didn't stop. But Peter and John go back to the, to the other Christians who are not yet, of course, been, been called Christians. People who are following this Jesus. When they hear what had happened to them, look at the first Christian's response in verse 24. When they hear how they had been jailed, when they hear how they had been threatened to quit speaking about this Jesus, they didn't whine and cry or complain. Look what they do in verse 24. Scripture says, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. What do they do? Right? Because they serve as a great example for us. Whether things are going great or things are going not so great, we always have the option of what? Of prayer. That is a tool in our toolbox always. A tool we should use. I'd love to tell you that I pray as often as I probably should. I don't. Uh, it's hard for me to sit still for all that long. I don't know about you. But prayer is just, what is prayer? Prayer is just a conversation with God. It can happen anytime and anywhere. I used to pray driving down the, the road in the garbage truck with my eyes open, of course, um, as I was picking up garbage. Or you can pray anywhere, doing anything, at any time. What we see here is that the, the, the first Christians have dedicated themselves to prayer. They lift their voices as one to God. They, they quote Psalm chapter 2, 1 and 2, which the whole psalm is generally throughout history been interpreted as a messianic psalm. Its, its initial context, of course, is about King David. I'd encourage you to go read the entire psalm, Psalm 2. It'll it, it give you a little bit of insight on this passage because really I think their, their entire prayer is probably being inspired by Psalm chapter 2, not just their actual quote of it in verse 25 and 26, but it's certainly through most people have believed that Psalm 2 is a, is a messianic psalm. Speaking, of course, of, of the Messiah who is to come, who Peter and John 
tell the, the world that is that Messiah is, in fact, this Jesus. They continue here in verse 27 through 31. It says this, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They had been threatened to to quit talking, right, to silence themselves, and that just doesn't happen. Instead, they go to prayer. They speak a course of the persecution of Jesus, knowing that they themselves, Jesus had warned them, that they themselves would what? Would also face that persecution. And it's, it's happening. And it's going to get much worse before it gets any better, isn't it? In just a few chapters, we're going to see the first Christian martyr, Stephen, is going to be killed for this faith in Jesus. So it's not, it's not getting better. It's only going to get worse. This is the beginning of it, but it's, it's going to increase in severity and intensity. And notice their prayer. Look what they say in verse 29. Their prayer isn't, God, make this stop. Their prayer isn't, God, this isn't fair. What's their prayer in verse 29? Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That's a prayer of courage, isn't it? It isn't, God, make them stop being mean to me. God, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home because this isn't fun anymore. What's the prayer? The prayer is, God, give us courage. In the face of persecution, in the face of of being told we can't, give us the courage to say, yes, we will. To take up your mission, God, and to be faithful no matter what. That should be our prayer. Is God, I'm in. Whatever you have in store for me, I'm in. Now that's a dangerous prayer to pray. Be careful, you might end up here one day. Be careful what you pray for with God because he listens and he'll answer it. Be careful what you pray, but what their prayer is is a prayer of boldness and courage, isn't it? It's a prayer of, God, I'll do whatever, whatever you need me to do, I'm in. I'm in. Is that our prayer? Is our prayer, God, I'm in. Help me to be bold. Or is our prayers far too often, God, I have a stuffy nose, can you please make it go away? I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. I, the, me too, right? If you point a finger at somebody, there's three pointing back at you. I'm just as bad as anybody else. God, this is what I need. This is what I want. This is what I need. This is what I want. This is what I need. This is what I want. Oh, yeah, and thanks, by the way, for all you do for me already. Right? I mean, really, that's how we pray. That's how I pray often. Our prayer should be, God, use me. Whatever that looks like, whatever that means, use me, God. But my prayer far too often is, God, I need, 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 thank you. Amen. That's not the prayer of these first Christians. The prayer of the first Christians is, God, give us courage and strength to be bold no matter what. Why? These people are the witnesses of the resurrection. They know the power that God has. And so they're, they're not worried about the enemy, are they? They're not worried about what's going to come against them because they know, they believe that God is greater than any enemy that could come against them 
or any persecution they would face. They believe because they've seen it. They've seen the power of God. They've watched God bring somebody back to life. They've seen it with their own two eyes. They smelled it. They experienced it. They felt it. They touched it. They saw it. They saw the, the holes in Jesus from crucifixion. Saw the hole in his side, didn't they? They watched him ascend to heaven. And so their prayer isn't, God, help me because I have the sniffles. Their prayer is, God, make me bold and courageous for you. Because I know your power. I saw it. Your power is mighty and great. So may you and I pray that same prayer. God, use me. Help me to be bold. Help me to be courageous no matter what. And for you and I, those of us who live in in a country, blessed to live in a country where we aren't persecuted for our faith, we have to make sure that that prayer goes out to our brothers and sisters who are in countries that are persecuted. God, give them the courage. Give them the strength. Protect them today and every day. Because so many of our brothers and sisters around the world are persecuted for their faith. They are. They lose jobs. They lose their, their family. They lose their position or status in their country. Then some of them actually lose their lives because of this Jesus. I have a feeling their prayer is a lot like this prayer. God, help me to be bold. Help me to be courageous. Help me to have strength. Luke tells us that after they prayed that prayer, the place that they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. That they, they prayed that prayer and God was quick to answer, wasn't he? And he fills them with the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit gives them and us, that same Holy Spirit, the courage to go and speak that word boldly. To live that word boldly. And that's what we're going to see here. Is they aren't just speaking it, they're living it. They're doing it. Look what happens here as we continue in. We're going to add now here that section I told you we skipped in chapter 2. I skipped it for a reason. It fits, not that, it just fits with the theme here. Okay, so going back to chapter 2 here, and you're going to see why, because it's very, it's very close to what we're going to see here in chapter 4. So look about what these first Christians, these people we've been talking about, look what they did. Look at their habits. Look at the things that they do. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with the awe, was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. A few things I want you to see here. Look at, there's four things listed in verse 42 that these first Christians are doing. They've, de- they've developed, they're developing a habit. First one is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Can you and I do the same thing? Yeah, it's right there in the pew in front of you, Right? They devoted themselves to what? To the Word. They devoted themselves to what God was handing down through those apostles to them then, which you and I can read today, now, here. They opened it up and they were learning. They didn't have to open it up. They were, they were receiving it, right? First person. We can open it up, though, and receive it. Excuse me, receive it, too. What else did they do? The second thing. 
They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. I had a professor in Bible college, Dr. Beckman, who's gone to be with the Lord now, who described fellowship as this. It's two fellows in the same ship. It's simple, but it gets the point across. Fellowship isn't just, hey, we came and we ate together, we had cookies and punch for 30 minutes. Fellowship is living life together. Ups and downs, mountain highs and valley lows. Fellowship is coming together as a group of two or more people joining together and tackling life together, isn't it? It's about community. And that's what you're going to see here. This section, the section of chapter 4 we're going to read that we'll, that we'll end with is all about community. It's about how these first Christians came together because they had to. They were forced to because persecution was making them, right? They, they were forced together and they were knit together. There's all kinds, I can tell you all kinds of stories of how this happens even today. Trauma brings people together. When you go through something together, it brings you together in ways nothing else can. I, I, there's, I've been through it time and time again in the fire service of going through things. With, there's things I've been with through people who I will hold dear to my heart to the day I die. Because we were there together. And we went through it together. These, these disciples... These first followers of Jesus are going through this together. And so it's knitting them together in ways that they wouldn't if there wasn't persecution. It's bringing them closer and tighter together than, than, than they could. Think about it in your own life. If you're married, if you're in that relationship, you've probably gone through some stuff together, haven't you? It hasn't always been great. But you know what the hard times do? One, they help you find out what you're really made of, don't they? super easy when everything's going great. Everyone can get along then. That's not real hard. It's when things hit the fan, when things aren't going our way is when we find out who we want, who we really are. We find out who our spouse really is. When we come through it, and what happens? We develop character. We develop something inside of us that helps us realize that we're, we're in this together. We're a team. That when we're a team and we stick together, there's nothing we can't accomplish. nothing that can't be done when we're together. That when we were apart, when we're individuals, maybe we can't quite do it. Think of God. God is three in one. He is a relationship. He is a community in and of himself. And so, of course, these first Christians come together in fellowship as a community. And part of what they do as a community, the third thing, they break the breaking of bread. Now, that is, of course, eating a meal, but there's, it's, most people believe it's more than that. You and I actually already did it today. That breaking of bread... Is the, is the blood and the body, right? There's more to it than just eating a meal. When they came together, they remembered the sacrifice of Jesus, that, the sacrifice that he made. So the breaking of the bread is communion. It's remembering why they are who they are, why they do what they do. It comes back to the sacrifice, to that blood spilled on that cross. And the fourth thing we already saw earlier, didn't we? It's prayer. Prayer. Prayer can get you through things that nothing else can. Because God's ear is turned to us, and He always hears our cries. He has since the beginning of time. If you don't believe me, read the book of Exodus. How does the book of Exodus begin? The Israelites are persecuted. They're being enslaved, right? Poor Moses is they're trying to the, the, the new Pharaoh that's come to power is worried that the Israelites are going to turn against him and join in another mil, in a military effort against him, so he starts killing the little boys. And 
enslaves the Israelites. And what do they do? They, the story begins, the action of the story begins by them crying out to God. And what does God do? God comes to the rescue. He tells Moses, I've heard the cries of my people. I've heard them. I have to do something. I can't sit here and not, I can't. I have to do something. So Moses, you're going to be it. You and your brother, you're going to go to the Pharaoh. You're going to stand up to him. And what we see happen in a very dramatic fashion is what? God rescues his people. That same God's ear is turned towards you and me. He always hears our cries. He always has and he always will. And you and I have a gift that they didn't have in Exodus. We have that Holy Spirit. And the Scriptures tells us that the Holy Spirit, we don't even have the words to pray. When you're on your knees and you've got nothing, nothing's coming out because you've got nothing left to give, what's that Holy Spirit do on our behalf? Praise. Praise. Praise for us. Even when we can't utter the words and we don't even have the strength to get those words out, it's been that day, that week, that month, that year, and we're, we're on empty. We've got nothing left to give and the Holy Spirit picks up the slack and prays for us, prays on our behalf. It's pretty powerful what these first Christians are doing in Acts 2 and Acts 4. Here we see that they're in, they're in awe and wonder of the signs that are being performed in their midst. Verse 44 tells us that the believers were together, had everything in common. Verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. You see what's happening? They're in emergency mode. They're in crisis mode. You ever been through crisis mode before? You ever been a part of something that's big, that's large? Uh, as our time, the four years we spent in California, we saw it time and time again of natural, of just tragedies, whether it was fires or earthquakes or, or mudslides. And what happens? People lose their homes, they lose everything. When you're in crisis mode, it's amazing how giving people become. I tell you personally, I was there where on, a, on, a, on a big accident where we had a lot of loss of life and we got to a place and you should see the stuff people were bringing. Cases of water and food. No one even asked them. They're just bringing it. Why? Because we have this inclination, don't we, as human beings to help each other. To pick each other up when we're down. And you should have saw the stuff that was coming in. They had to tell people to stop. Please stop. We, don't, we can't even take it. We have no place to put it all. As they're bringing food and water, they just... No one asked them. No one, they're just doing it. Why? Because when we see someone else hurting, we think to ourselves, what can I do? How can I help? These first Christians are doing that. They sold the property and possessions to give to anybody, anyone who's in need, anyone who's lost job or family because of this Jesus. They're selling stuff for each other. They're there for each other. They're building a community. We see that every day they're joining together to strengthen and encourage one another and praising God. And what the end of verse 47 tells us? We've seemed to lost this in modern in the church today. We seem to think that if we have flashy lights and funny blinking things that people will come. You know what people are really wanting in their lives? Community. And what happens in this community? And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It shouldn't be happening. When the church is persecuted, it doesn't make sense that they would be growing, and yet they continue to grow. Why? Because people actually want to be a part of something bigger than themselves, and they want, to be a, they want to do it with other people. And here we have a group of people who are dedicating themselves to something larger than themselves and are doing it together. And people are drawn to that. They're drawn to community. Look what Luke tells us happened here in, back where we began in Acts chapter 4. This is going to sound familiar. 
Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone who had need. Sounds a lot like chapter 2, doesn't it? That's the reason we skipped it and put it here. But look at the unity that they have. Remember, they were just told to shut up. Peter and John, what happened? They got put in jail overnight, and they warned them. They said what? Quit talking about this Jesus, or trouble's coming. And what do we have here? Verse 32 begins with, the believers are united. They're one in mind, one in spirit. Any organization has to be united. If, it, if, we, if, we, if we start having dissent and we start, every, each one of us wants our own way, what happens? If, it, if we put me before team, we're all in trouble, aren't we? You've been on a team like that before? Remember high school when you had a, a, a project with a group and you had to do all the homework? Yeah, it was great, wasn't it? You're like, I might as well have done this myself. Why, why is this a team project, right? Teacher's trying to get you to work together as a team, but you're the, the best student, and so you could do it all and carry the whole team with you? Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Yeah, I dreaded those too. That's not what's happening here. This is a team. It says all, the, verse 32, all the believers, not some of them, not three-quarters of them, not two-thirds of them, not half of them, all the believers were one in heart and mind. When we have a common goal and a common purpose, it's amazing what we can do, isn't it? And why? What's their purpose? What's the point? Verse 33 tells us, doesn't it? With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. What's the thing that unites them? Death, burial, resurrection. An empty tomb, isn't it? The empty tomb is what has solidified them as one group. Death has been conquered once and for all, and so together they are united under that. And remember, this is the group that was just told to be quiet. And what do we see in verse 33? With great power, the apostles continued, didn't stop, they continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What had they just been told? Please quit talking about that Jesus guy. Enough. Stop. And what do they do when they leave? They just keep talking about this Jesus guy. We know, because we saw, we read the trial already, what did they say? They said, are we going to listen to you or are we going to listen to to God? Peter and John said, we're listening to God. We're listening to you. And so even though they've been threatened, even though they've been warned, they continue to speak about this Jesus and the power of his resurrection. We find out that just like chapter 2, there's not a needy one to be found among them because they have been knit together in such unity that they're sharing their stuff because it's just stuff in order to make sure everybody has what they need. As they batten down the hatches, right? As a storm is coming, as they know it's coming, because they've been warned, stop talking about Jesus, and they haven't stopped talking about Jesus. So they know persecution's coming. As 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 they gather together, they care for one another. Notice that they aren't turning on each other. What often happens in a team when something goes wrong? You're only as good as your weakest link. And often that weak link breaks, and start turning on everybody else. This group, it's not happening. 
not happening. They're together as one. They've been unified under this Jesus. And so together they are coming and together even stronger than they could be individually. And they're selling stuff. Whatever needs to happen to make sure the community can be maintained, they're doing that. And the last of this section, we, we are introduced to a very important person who we're going to see throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Here in Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and 37. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Luke gives us an ex- example of what he's been talking about. He says, hey, here's an actual person. I can give you the name of somebody who's doing that, who's taking what he has and selling it and giving it to the apostles to make sure everybody has what they need. And his name is Barnabas, and he's going to become a very important player in this book of Acts. Matter of fact, if we don't have Barnabas, we don't have Saul, who becomes Paul. And the reason that Luke's telling you what his name means, because it's not actually, remember his name is actually Joseph, but the apostles call him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. What you're going to see from Barnabas is he is that. He is somebody who, who doesn't give up on people. Who, who, he's, the, he's the cup half full person. Believes there's a good, little bit of good in everyone. Because he's going to take somebody who's named Saul, who we all know as Paul, who's not exactly a great guy at this point. We're, we're not to him yet, so I, I don't want to spoil the story if you don't know the story yet. But Paul at this point is one of these people who's going to persecute the church, going to chase after him. We're going to see in just a few chapters. And Barnabas is going to be somebody who looks at that guy and goes, I bet you he would follow Jesus, and I bet you he'd be great at it. Everybody else is thinking to yourself, Barnabas, are you okay? Are you, uh, have you taken your medicine today? Because I'm not sure what you're seeing is the truth, right? Barnabas is the kind of guy who he looks and sees the best, and someone says, no, 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 they have potential, they can do it. And without Barnabas, whole sections of the New Testament aren't there. Because the most prolific writer in the New Testament is going to be this Paul. And without this guy, who's a son of encouragement, it never happens. You and I might not be named Barnabas, but you know what we can be? People who encourage. People who pick other people up when they have fallen, when they're down. It has gotten way too easy in our culture to be mad about everything and to, and, to be, and, to, and, and look for the worst in other people. That's easy, and it's lazy. It's what it is. If you're looking for bad in people, apparently you've never read the Bible because it tells you time. Jody read it today. Jeremiah says, The heart of man is deceitful among all things. Paul says in Romans 3.23, that for all have sinned and fallen short. If you're looking for negative, I promise you, you will find it in every one of us. Barnabas isn't the son of discouragement. He's not the son of bummer, right? He's not the guy who looks for the worst. He tries to find the best. And, and I'm only 32 years old, so I could be wrong, but so far my 32 years have shown me that if you look for the best in someone, it's much better than looking for the worst. Because when you look for the worst in other people, you know what they tend to do? They look at the worst in you. And if you know yourself well enough, you know it's there. That we're not always all that great, are we? I'm chief among that. The Apostle Paul said he's the, the center of all sinners, right? Aren't we all? We have a choice that we make every single day. The kind of person we want to be. 
You can be son or daughter of encouragement if you so desire. I fully believe that's your choice to make. You have to make it. I have to make it. You spend a lot of time around somebody who's not like Barnabas, who's discourages. You know what they do? They weigh you down. They are an anchor. Don't be an anchor. Don't weigh people down. We've got way too much riding on our shoulders already to be somebody who who pulls people down. Like, help them up. What do we... What is the, the miracle that happened before this whole section? Peter and John didn't walk by the guy who couldn't walk and went, sorry about your luck, dude. See you later. Like, that's not the story. What's the story? The reason that they're in trouble is because they did what? They saw a man who couldn't walk, who had never walked in his life, and said, hey, this Jesus, he can take care of that. Take my hand and get up. They literally lifted a man up who couldn't walk. That's how this begins. And so, of course, we end with the son of encouragement. Because why wouldn't we? Because the first Christians are pretty encouraging people, aren't they? The people are being added to their number every day, not because they talk a big game, because they walk the big game. Because they believe it with every fiber of their being. And so when they go out to talk about Jesus, they, they share the news, because it is actually good news, that, the, that people's sins, that you and I, our sins no longer count against us. That's good news. But that weight, that burden that you're carrying every day of all the skeletons in the closet, all the sin, all the junk, all the wrong choices that we've all made, every one of us, that you don't have to carry that anymore. That's good news. That the tomb is empty. That death no longer has a hold on you. It's nothing. That's good news, isn't it? You have a hope that this that lasts longer than this life. That has always been and will always be good news. So as we leave this place today and you go back to work or to school or to the grocery store or soccer soon or t-ball or baseball or basketball or wherever you're going, you can be good news. Like walking good news. It's not always easy. It is after all. They refer to it as the high road for a reason. The high road makes your legs burn a little more, doesn't it? You start climbing. The low road's easy. Downhill, no problem. The high road's a little more difficult. What we see here is these first Christians are people who are taking the difficult road, the high road. And Barnabas is one of them. You and I can be the same way, can't we? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come here today to, to read your word, to be challenged by it, Father. As we see these first Christians and their dedication to you, their dedication to to your teaching, to your power, to your might, as they, as they were witnesses to your resurrection, God. We see them facing difficult circumstances and odds as they are told to, to be quiet, to quit talking about this Jesus, and they do the exact opposite. Fathers, we see as we read this passage here, as they prepare for persecution, as they know it's coming, we see them dedicating themselves to your teaching, to your word, to the taking of communion, to prayer, and to being together as one, as, as one body, as one community. Father, we ask that you do the same for us, that you would knit us together in the spirit of unity, that we would be united under the powerful and mighty acts of your son, Jesus. As he conquered death on our behalf, you took our sin with him to that cross, and he left it there. Every one of them. 
God, help us to believe that. Not just intellectually, not just in our mind, but believe it with every fiber of our being to live as though it is true because it is. That you have taken our sin away in one faithful act. And you didn't stop there, God. Your son came back to, li- to life. He left that tomb empty so that we could have the promise of life everlasting with you. So God, we take hope, great hope, in that promise. That the end is not the end. It's just a new beginning. Father, we thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you most of all for your son Jesus. In his powerful and healing name we pray. Amen. Amen.